I spend a lot of time thinking about some of the most painful parts of our nation's history. Slavery, the slave trade, segregation, and racial violence pervade so much of my work. This stuff is hard. So I'm not apologetic about keeping my TV viewing light. I remain unashamed that I watch every Hallmark Christmas movie, even though I can tell from the first scene exactly how it will play out. And I'll much sooner watch Saturday Night Live than an episode of Ozark. But a lot of my family members like their entertainment to be a little bit darker, a little more real than I do. Those family members watch the HBO show Watchmen that premiered in 2019. The show takes place in a modern-day Tulsa, Oklahoma, but in an alternate timeline of American history. In this Tulsa, our protagonist is serving as both a police officer and a vigilante superhero named Sister Knight. Spoiler alert, her grandfather is a survivor of the Tulsa Massacre. I'm not going to get into what seems to be an alien squid attack or a subplot set on one of Jupiter's moons. Let's just say that even though it's set in a very different America, the characters are dealing with political and racial issues which are grounded in the very real American universe. In 1921, white Oklahomans aided by police officers and the National Guard raised 35 square blocks of Black Tulsa and the thriving Greenwood community known as Black Wall Street. The reason? The rumored assault of a white girl by a black man. The allegation was proved false, and the black community resisted. But before the massacre was over, between 70 and 300 people were dead, and 8,000 were homeless. The first episode of Watchmen begins with a reenactment of the Tulsa Massacre. We see chaos on the streets. There's smoke everywhere, and people are ducking gunfire as planes are buzzing overhead and dropping incendiary bombs on buildings. It was in this opening scene that my family learned about the Tulsa Massacre. Sure, they had heard Tulsa referenced, probably by me. But Watchmen made them really get Tulsa. They weren't alone. The show star Regina King tweeted, seeing so many tweets that Watchmen was the first time they had heard about Black Wall Street and had no idea that our opening depicted the Tulsa Massacre, which had not been taught in U.S. history classes, made me want to post this post. She then linked to a Washington Post article about the search for mass graves from the 1921 massacre. Two years later, Joe Biden became the first sitting president to commemorate the 1921 massacre. He delivered an emotional speech in the city on the event's 100th anniversary. For much too long, the history of what took place here was told in silence, cloaked in darkness. But just because history is silent, it doesn't mean that it did not take place. Hell was unleashed. Literal hell was unleashed. We do ourselves no favors by pretending none of this ever happened or it doesn't impact us today because it does still impact us today. We can't just choose to learn what we want to know and not what we should know. Because in silence, wounds deepen. When President Biden's address forced national attention on this event's centennial, 
it seemed a whole other segment of the American population heard about the Tulsa massacre for the very first time. And again, numerous articles were written about the many Americans who had never learned of the event. Like so much of American history that doesn't fit the comfortable and celebratory narrative, what I call the things started out great and have been getting better ever since narrative, Tulsa had been buried. And it's not just Tulsa. East St. Louis, Chester, Pennsylvania, Houston, Philadelphia, Charleston, Longview, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Knoxville, and Elaine, Arkansas. All are instances of anti-Black collective violence that occurred between 1917 and 1919. Joe Biden's speech, shows like Watchmen, and HBO's Lovecraft Country, which also depicts the massacre. Maybe these are signs that America is ready to begin confronting the racial violence that pervades its past. But there are entrenched interests in politics and government that are determined to make this difficult. Just three weeks before Biden's visit to Tulsa, the Republican governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, signed a law prohibiting certain ideas about race and racism from being taught in the state schools. Now more than ever, we need policies that bring us together, not rip us apart. And as governor, I firmly believe that not one cent of taxpayer money should be used to define and divide young Oklahomans about their race or sex. That is what this bill upholds for public education. In all, 23 states, from Rhode Island to Texas, have either enacted similar bans or have legislation to do so under consideration. As educators, we don't have to wait for the next sci-fi television show to teach our students about this history. We can use our classrooms to actually help them make sense of this hard history and the nation it helped to create. Because it's not just African-American history. It's definitely not revisionist history. This is U.S. history in all of its complexity. I'm Bethany J, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. Starting in the 1910s, African-Americans began leaving the South in record numbers during the Great Migration. African-American businesses were thriving in many places, and the Black middle class was growing, as thousands of Black veterans who had been making the world safe for democracy were returning to a nation that resented them. What followed was a series of coordinated anti-Black acts of collective violence around the country. David Krugler is the author of 1919, The Year of Racial Violence. In this episode, he talks with my co-host Hassan Kwame Jeffries about the massacres that occurred during the Red Summer and in Tulsa, about the lasting damage that they caused, and how black communities fought back, resisting these premeditated acts of white supremacist terrorism. I'm so glad you can join us. Let's get started. Come on. 
David, I am really excited to welcome you to the podcast and say thank you so much in advance for joining us today. Thank you, Hassan. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. In a number of the episodes that we've had so far, we've spent a lot of time focusing on African-American experiences in the South. But there comes a time in the African-American experience where black folk begin to move out of the South and this movement we call the Great Migration. Could you share a little bit about what the Great Migration was and what led African-Americans to migrate out of the South? Yes. So one of the greatest social changes taking place during the 1910s is that approximately 500,000 African-Americans leave the South for northern cities such as Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh. After the war years, uh, approximately 1914 and 1918, we have an even greater migration. And so in the decades that follow, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s during World War II, uh, millions more uh, leave the South. Uh, and there are many reasons uh, for that departure uh, and relocation. Uh, during uh, 1914, there are cotton failures, there are, there's flooding, there is the structure of debt peonage that uh, holds black sharecroppers in bondage to the land. If, if they try to leave, they'll, they'll be arrested. They're cheated out of their earnings so that they're permanently in debt. So that's a big reason to leave uh, if they can make the escape. Uh, because of the shutoff of European migration to the United States because of World War I, northern factories need labor. They desperately need labor. They send labor agents to the South to recruit African-Americans uh, and offer them incentives to come North. Most African-Americans actually remain in the South. Why didn't more people go? There are obstacles to it. Uh, Southern officials try to block this. Some states require these labor agents to pay $500 uh, for a, a license to do this. The, the point was to make it prohibitively expensive. Uh, and the reason for uh, blocking African-Americans from uh, leaving um, is, is pretty clear. They had a, a captive labor market. They had an exploited population uh, which wanted to leave. For those who try to leave, violence awaits. Sheriffs can track them down uh, and arrest them. Uh, they could be subjected to mob violence. There's also um, the very real fear of retaliation against family members. Uh, so if, if one person leaves, they worry uh, about elderly relatives who may not want to make the move or may not physically be able to. Uh, will there be retaliation uh, against them? Uh, when you've got a system that has all the resources of the state, not just law enforcement uh, and the courts, uh, but also uh, all elected officials appointed uh, positions, the running of municipal and state governments and county uh, governments, uh, and then you've got an economic system that's rigged against African-Americans, that's... Um, you know, a pretty big obstacle to get over. And it takes a, a great deal of, of, of courage to leave, but it also takes courage to stay. We shouldn't think that those who chose to remain behind mm -hmm. were cowardly in some way. I mean, there's a complex mix of, of, of reasons to stay or go. And I think also when we look at the Great Migration in um, as a decades-long process um, with millions more uh, leaving the South for the North in the 20s, 30s, and, and 40s, uh, then we see that it, it does snowball. Uh, and so more and more people do make that choice to leave. It's, uh, we can think of that 500,000 as a vanguard. What are some of the things that teachers can do to teach the Great Migration? 
both the reasons why African-Americans left and also some of the issues that African-Americans encountered when they arrived in the cities of the North and the West. I think one of the best tools for teachers are a series of letters to the Chicago Defender that the Library of Congress has, letters written by Southern African-Americans who want to move north. The Chicago Defender is a weekly black newspaper, obviously published in Chicago, but it has national distribution. Uh, and its publisher, Robert Abbott, was a big fan of um, migration. Uh, and a lot of the content of the Chicago Defender played up the opportunities in Chicago, encouraged uh, Southern blacks uh, to move. Uh, and, and this got the attention uh, of African-Americans of all ages across the South. And so you read these letters, and some are from teenagers uh, asking for help. And they always say, look, I'll pay you back. But the conditions are so bad here. We live in fear. Um, people are being lynched. We're cheated out of our wages. We have families to support. Uh, we'd like to come north. And these letters, um, and you can get the original scan, so you can see how the people wrote them out in pencil, on, on, on paper. Uh, it's, it's pretty moving and a great teaching resource. And also, one of the great cultural depictions, artistic depictions of the Great Migration can be found in a series of panels uh, that the black painter Jacob Lawrence uh, produced. He's got a very distinctive style. Uh, these are figurative paintings, but there is a certain level of abstraction with, with a lot of angular presentation, but it's really striking. I mean, his color palette is amazing. And so in, in one painting, we see African-Americans flowing into three doors to go to different locations of the Great Migration, and he captures so well the press of bodies, you know, the urgency that people felt to get out. And from there, the panels go on to show trains at night and the arrival in the city, finding work, um, finding inferior housing stock, experiencing uh, discrimination, resentment in the South, efforts to block labor agents from even uh, coming South to recruit um, uh, these migrants. Uh, one of the panels uh, shows uh, hands gripping a prison bar. Uh, and we only see those hands in this small prison window. It's a labor agent who's been uh, jailed for, for recruiting. And so that gives us this really um, great artistic presentation uh, of the Great Migration. And, and all the panels do that. And what were some issues that African-Americans would have encountered when they arrived from Alabama and settled in Cleveland or in leaving Mississippi and settled in Chicago? The North was often seen as a promised land, but it had lots and lots of problems uh, itself. There, there were a lot of uh, issues uh, awaiting uh, these migrants. Let's start with two. One, residential segregation. So Chicago, uh, one of the prime destinations for Southern migrants, part of Chicago becomes known as North Mississippi uh, during the interwar years. Uh, they find uh, a small and thriving African-American community, but one bounded uh, by... Um, strictly, rigidly enforced uh, residential lines of, of segregation. This is maintained by a variety of practices. So the migrants pour into this uh, existing community 
which is known as the Black Belt. Uh, and by 1919, uh, it's bursting at the seams, uh, and the housing stock is uh, not great uh, either. So that's the first big problem. The second, there's a lot of hostility within Chicago's workplaces, and, and this is true in Pittsburgh and Detroit. Uh, white-only unions shut out black laborers, and this breeds resentment on, on both sides. Uh, there's already this a malicious stereotype that African Americans are strike breakers. And in some cases, employers did bring in black workers, uh, many times unwitting black workers. They don't know they're being used uh, to cross picket lines. Uh, and that adds to the resentment. We're going to see both of these problems, uh, the existence of this discrimination, cause Chicago to boil over in the summer of 1919. This is Teaching Hard History, and I'm Bethany J. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources, as well as a full transcript, complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org podcasts. Now let's return to Hassan's conversation with David Kugler. The summer of 1919 was famously called by James Weldon Johnson the Red Summer, referring to regular outbreaks of anti-black collective violence uh, that took the lives of hundreds of, of African Americans. Uh, in just one site of the violence, Phillips County, Arkansas, more than 230 African Americans were killed by, by white mobs and, and white soldiers. There were nine other sites of such violence uh, in 1919, and it uh, preceded the summer and it continued uh, after the summer. It's one of the worst periods of mob violence directed at African Americans in U.S. history. Indeed, one of the worst stretches of any mob violence in the nation's history. So during the war years, many African Americans with the means to do so rent or purchase homes in dominant white neighborhoods. In Chicago, for example, when African Americans move into those homes, they are the target of terrorism. There were, in the first six or so months of 1919, more than a dozen bombings of black-occupied homes on white streets or bombings against realtors who brokered either the rental uh, or the sale uh, of the home. So we have uh, targeted violence to drive African-Americans out. And this is building up. Then, in, in late July 1919, there's an altercation on the shore of Lake Michigan. It's a hot day. It's a, a hundred, hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, and a young black man with three friends, um, a teenager named Eugene Williams, was on a raft. They were floating by a, a, a white area, and a young white man started throwing rocks at them. And uh, one of them hit Eugene Williams, and he drowned. This created an incident on the beach. African-Americans were angry when a black witness pointed out the rock thrower, a white police officer, arrested the witness rather than the perpetrator. So this creates a, a, a tension, a conflict on the beach. What happens that night is that organized gangs in the white neighborhoods, uh, among them one known as Reagan's Colts, and they took their name from a prominent local 
Democratic official, Frank Reagan, uh, who sponsored the club. Uh, they were called athletic clubs, but they often blurred that line uh, between uh, that sort of social activity uh, and extra legal action. And they began targeting black occupied homes. And if you look at photographs of Chicago after this violence, it's, it's remarkable to see streets where all the homes are untouched uh, except uh, for one, and that was a black occupied home. There are photos of young uh, white children and teenagers filling the looted home, leaning out of broken windows, filling the yard, standing on the sills of broken windows, cheering uh, at the photographer. It's a staged photo. They're celebrating the uh, expulsion uh, of these unwanted uh, neighbors. Uh, and that's one of the purposes of the white violence against African Americans in Chicago, and we see it in other cities as well, to drive out these newcomers. It's uh, really a form of ethnic cleansing. This is why we need to be careful not to call them riots. It's very problematic because when we think of a riot, it looks like random or spontaneous mayhem. And it's easy to conclude that anyone participating is equally to blame. But these weren't riots. They were organized attacks against African-Americans uh, for the purposes of driving them out of these homes. There were organized attacks in Chicago against black packing house workers. So the packing houses, uh, the back of the yards, um, was in a white neighborhood. And to get home, black workers had to take streetcars across this territory that's very hostile to them. And white gangs pull black workers off or chase them off the cars and hunt them down. And there's a Japanese immigrant named Jun Fujita, who was a photographer for one of Chicago's daily newspapers. And, and he took on the scene photographs of these murders taking place. They're, they're very graphic. Um, they're hard to look at, but they are very important resources because they document beyond a doubt just how meditated this was. It wasn't random. You use the phrase, Anyone who participated is equally to blame when we call these massacres, this in, these, this intentional killings, riots. So the language that we use, we have to be very mindful of. And I'm glad that you reminded us of that. How did African-Americans respond in the moment to this orgy of violence that isn't just limited to Chicago? They responded in three ways. First, through armed self-defense. So they did the job that the police were unable or even refused uh, to do. Uh, and one of the decisions made by Chicago's uh, superintendent of police was to cordon off the black belts. And, and, and uh, Garrity, the, the, the head of Chicago's police, said, well, this will protect African-Americans, will keep hostile whites from coming in. But there were already gangs active within that cordon, so it did nothing to protect them. So African-Americans had to do it themselves. And veterans, uh, black Chicago veterans of the war, they were determined not to be mown down during outbreaks of, of white mob violence. So they take up arms to defend themselves and their families and their community uh, against uh, the violence. What's interesting about Chicago is that it had an all-black National Guard unit. So this unit was comprised of men uh, who had served together for a while, who knew each other, uh, their friends and neighbors in many instances. And it was a, 
a, a unit led by black officers. So they have this um, cohesion that they can call upon. And so they put on their uniforms. Some of them even were wearing the Croix de Guerre, the Medal of Honor that the French government had given them for their service because they had been assigned uh, to French uh, units. And they're on the streets stopping gangs from uh, attacking African Americans. Later, after uh, Chicago's violence, uh, um, a coroner's grand jury praises them for helping to keep the calm. But if you read Chicago's newspapers, they are portrayed as villains. As the violence unfolds, uh, the newspapers are, are providing daily coverage, uh, and there are multiple editions being published uh, each day. And we should remind ourselves that at this moment in, in time, in 1919, this is the major source uh, for, for timely news. There's no radio news, certainly no television news. And so the newspapers in Chicago, and this is a pattern seen in other cities as well, they immediately begin blaming African Americans for the violence, though, uh, as we've established, African Americans are the targets uh, of violence, uh, and they are often responding uh, with armed self-defense. So when uh, black veterans in Chicago took action to protect uh, black families and the black community from these roving, violent gangs, the white press presented that as the problem. And in one article, the Chicago Tribune uh, provided a script for a new version of the birth of the nation. They described these black veterans as marauders um, who were storming down the streets, firing indiscriminately uh, at women and children, uh, sending terrified whites a scurrying. And then they describe a brave white police officer uh, who stands up to these marauders uh, and is, is, is shot, but the bullet bounces off his shields. Mm. So, I mean, think about, you know, this fantastical symbolism that is being put forward here. And, and although this is an extreme example, uh, there are similar stories in, in Chicago's other papers, similar stories uh, in, in Washington, D.C.'s papers and the other cities that are sites of anti-black collective violence. And so this idea we have of, of riots where everyone's to blame, um, we inherit that from the very biased, slanted media coverage uh, of the violence itself, which blamed African Americans for it when in fact they were defending themselves. And they also resisted in two other ways. They tried to get out the truth about the riots, and the NAACP is a leader in this, but so too the black press, such as the Chicago Defender. And the third way is to go to court and defend African Americans who were charged with murder, uh, if they uh, killed a white in self-defense uh, or other very serious felonies. And in Chicago, they win several victories. They get acquittals uh, or dismissal of charges. I'm thinking about how teachers can teach about Red Summer, can teach about this violence, can teach about the African-American response to this violence in ways that are both accurate and effective and yet do not traumatize students because this subject matter is so intense. Do you have some recommendations? Uh, yes. I think one way to approach this is to look at editorials or coverage in black newspapers, such as the Chicago Defender, also the Messenger, uh, Chandler Owen and A. Randolph, A. Philip Randolph's uh, publication, or in the crisis, um, 
the uh, publication of the NAACP. Uh, in particular, Walter White uh, helped write reports describing what happened in Chicago, describing resistance to it, and to, to look at how there's an appraisal of what happened and a celebration uh, of the fighting back. Uh, and so that provides a counter to the fallacious presentation to be found elsewhere uh, in the media in 1919, uh, but does so in ways that don't glorify or linger on the violence. Would you suggest using cultural productions as well? Uh, what comes immediately to mind to me in, in, in 1919 and sort of the black response is Claude McKay's powerful poem, If We Must Die. Yes, absolutely. And using poetry uh, is a good way to do it. And, and that poem in particular, with its opening line, if we must die, uh, let it not be like hogs. Uh, and, you know, it talks about the violence and, and being outnumbered, but, but celebrates this willingness, this determination to stand up and make a sacrifice if, if necessary. It's, it's, it's a short, well-crafted piece of verse, and it works superbly in the classroom. Learning for Justice has a special opportunity, just for educators. After listening to this episode, you can earn a certificate for one hour of professional development. All you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, violence, all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. Is 1919 an anomaly? Is it a blip on the radar? It's not an anomaly. It is a culmination of years and years, even decades, of regular anti-Black collective violence. Violence that's been going on since Reconstruction. In Reconstruction, we see recurring political terrorism that inflicts heavy, heavy casualties. And the state of Louisiana alone during the years of Reconstruction uh, records more than 1,100 uh, African Americans killed, uh, often at political rallies by organized terrorist groups, um, the Ku Klux Klan and other uh, white terrorist organizations. That continues even after the formal end uh, of Reconstruction. We've got the infamous example in Wilmington uh, in 1898, uh, where you have mob actions that depose a lawfully elected government in furtherance of, of white supremacy and, and white-only elections and, and governance. Uh, we have uh, anti-black collective violence in Springfield in 1906, so we can track these events in the post-Civil War era and see them occurring regularly and then reaching this peak in late 1918, going into early 1920, more than 10 major episodes of anti-Black collective violence, not just Chicago, but Washington, D.C., Omaha, Bogalusa, Louisiana, Gary, Indiana, Knoxville, Tennessee. We're talking about not just the South, but the North and the Midwest as well. That's in that end of the war period, the long 1919, we might call it, but it doesn't end there. The violence continues into 1920, uh, and then there's another paroxysm of it in the summer of 1921 uh, in Tulsa. Uh, and that race massacre, uh, we just passed the 100th anniversary of that earlier this year. 
And what exactly happens in Tulsa in 1921? I think the first thing that should be said is that black people were doing well. Tulsa, though it's not thought of as a destination of the great, during the first great migration, by 1921, Greenwood, uh, the black area of Tulsa, uh, was home to uh, around 10,000 African-Americans. And the business district of Greenwood, which later came to be called uh, Black Wall Street, uh, had a variety of prospering uh, businesses. Um, you know, we have the example of J.B. Stratford, who had been born in Kentucky as a slave uh, at the start of the Civil War. Uh, he built and ran um, a, a hotel that was considered the, the nation's largest black-owned hotel. This was a threat to white supremacy because it proved African Americans could succeed and prosper. So how could they be racially inferior to whites if they're doing so well? There's a lot of resentment at this prosperity. One of the causes of Washington, D.C.'s racial violence in 1919 is white resentment at the black middle class, which emerged as a result of opportunities working for that city's biggest employer, the national government. So a spark occurs Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Tulsa's two main papers, the white papers, uh, published these Uh, really exaggerated to completely false accounts of uh, an attack on a young white woman by a young black man. Uh, And this becomes the the spark for for mob action uh, in which thousands uh, of whites uh, attack Greenwood uh, and African-Americans defend themselves, but they're outnumbered. Uh, And by the time the pogrom, by the time this massacre uh, is over, uh, a 35 square block area um, was gone. It was uh, rubble. Uh, and and smoking uh, ashes. Thousands left homeless. Uh, The value of businesses lost in today's dollars is uh, estimated anywhere from 20 million to uh, 100 million or more dollars. I mean, it's just, it was wealth wiped out. David, when it was over, how do cities respond to these crises? One notable response comes in Chicago, where unlike in most other cities where the violence occurred, there is a sustained effort to figure out how this happened, why it happened, and what must be done to prevent it from ever occurring again. So the Chicago Commission on Race Relations, a, a biracial group, uh, hires investigators, conducts months of study and research, and produces um, a lengthy report that pinpoints racial segregation racial residential segregation is, is, is a major problem and proposes methods or ways to, to end that. But those recommendations go unheeded. Instead, there's a doubling down on the color line in Chicago and the entrenchment of measures, um, including realty practices and, and banking, uh, lending and credit, uh, which become even more entrenched with uh, when they're baked into federal housing policies uh, emerging during the New Deal years. Uh, So the color line in Chicago uh, becomes even uh, harsher uh, and and more rigid. And then this produces the very same problems that led to 1919's violence. When black families move into white neighborhoods or buy buildings in, in white communities, uh, there's this tremendous and violent uh, a backlash, and it's it's often overlooked that um, 
Martin Luther King comes north, he comes to Chicago, and he marches in Cicero, and he's attacked in Cicero. When he turns his attention and his efforts toward um, Jim Crow in the north, uh, the backlash he receives is, is as harsh as anything he experienced in the south. One of the things that struck me during the 100th anniversary of, of, of the Tulsa massacre was the number of people who were shocked that something like that had even occurred. What happened to the memory of these events after they occur? The survivors and their descendants keep that history alive. They kept artifacts, they kept documents proving what had happened. They shared the stories uh, with one another. They understood that there was some risk in doing so because Tulsa as a whole didn't want to acknowledge this, wanted to move on, forget it had happened, at, at best acknowledge it as um, an anomaly, um, something that would never happen again, that was a one-off. But keeping those records, keeping those stories alive makes it possible for scholars decades later to, to revisit this. Uh, and you know, one of the scholars uh, of, the, of the massacre, a reporter uh, and writer named Tim Madigan, you know, he, he has recently remarked, like, how could I not know this? You know, he's like, I, you know, I'm a, you know, an educated person, I'm a reporter in the region, and I've never heard of this. And there's a reason for that. This is a really difficult episode in American history to engage with. I think a lot of us would like to believe uh, it wasn't part of a pattern, but it was. It was part of a pattern that had been building for decades, going back into the mid-19th century, as mentioned earlier. And so it becomes easier to bury it, to forget it, to hide it, or it seems to be easier. But that creates all sorts of problems for us uh, as a population. If we hide this from our young people, if we say, oh, we shouldn't teach about this because it, it makes people uncomfortable, uh, or it's a way of you know, blaming uh, people today for something that happened in the past. I mean, we know that's not what we do in history. One of the remarkable developments of this past year is the passage of legislation uh, that ostensibly is designed to teach sort of a patriotic version of the past. This anti-critical race theory legislation in Oklahoma has passed one of these bills, which in effect would make it illegal to teach about Tulsa. Which pits the new law against standing law in Oklahoma. Back in 1997, um, at the initiative of a black legislator, uh, Oklahoma created a commission to study the Tulsa race right of 1921. And for the last 20 years, since 2002, state public schools must teach about the destruction of Greenwood. So how do you reconcile those two laws? You, you can't. And so it speaks to the inherent flaws uh, in, in the new law. This is not unique to Oklahoma. Florida has put itself in such a trap, too. Florida has long required uh, the teaching of the Holocaust in its public schools, and they do a very good job of doing that. Now there's a new law um, that is part of this initiative to suppress this history uh, that bans 
Florida public school teachers from introducing material that could make students uncomfortable. Well, that too goes against the law requiring the teaching uh, of, of the Holocaust. You know, another thing that's so wrong about this, I think one of the purposes of these initiatives is to say, well, we need to focus on on the founders and, and the creation of, of, of the Republic. Well, when you look at just a little bit of the writings of Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington, uh, you can see them wrestling with this dilemma that they are creating, that they are trying to forge freedom uh, at the same time they are building and protecting slavery. And, you know, this unsettled them intellectually. They wrestled with this. And so these laws are, in effect, telling us we can't even look at how the founders of our nation wrestled with this. We're doing a disservice to their own actions. If the founders could wrestle with this, surely fifth graders can in the hands of capable teachers. The 100th anniversary of the 1919 violence uh, occurred two years ago. And it was interesting to note which communities and states uh, engaged openly uh, and, and fully uh, with um, this past. Uh, I think Chicago uh, did, a good, uh, did a really good job uh, of engaging with it. They had uh, programs um, through the public schools and, and the Newberry Library, a, a private research institution in Chicago, uh, bringing in uh, public school students to write poems about this, to produce art, to learn about it. They had, they had exhibits. And so there's a positive example of, of what we can do. Um, it, rather than shirk from it, uh, learn from it, engage with it, and understand how that produces the world in, in, which, we, in which we live. If there's one takeaway, uh, one key point that you would want students to know about this period, this moment, the, the 19 teens into the early 1920s, about the Jim Crow North, what would it be? I would want students to know about the premeditation and the dedication that goes into maintaining a very rigid color line. So in Chicago, for example, there is the use of terrorism, violence to enforce it. But that's the action of last resort. It's preceded by contracts, standard contracts that exclude the sale to people of color, the rental to people of color. It includes agreements between banks and realtors not to provide loans or credit to African Americans to buy in these neighborhoods. Think about what that then perpetuates. This would be also important for the students to learn. That produces schools of one race or the other, all white schools or all black schools. That is done without a state law in Illinois requiring segregated schools. In Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, you see something similar happen. There's no state law requiring it, as there is in South Carolina, for example. So the Brown v. Board decision, which we rightly focus on, directs our attention to the South. But when we point our attention to the North, we see that the same unequal segregated school system is produced through different practices, but the results are very much the
the same. And then think about how that then affects opportunities throughout one's working life, uh, if they're receiving an unequal education, uh, if they're shut out from universities too, if employment offices are closed to them, that basis of segregation fans out in the North. David, I can't thank you enough for these tremendous insights. Appreciate you so much. Thank you, Hassan. It's just been great to talk with you, and I really appreciate the opportunity. David Krugler is a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. He is the author of several books, including 1919, The Year of Racial Violence, How African Americans Fought Back. He is a former Institute for Research in the Humanities Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. David is also a novelist who has written multiple Cold War spy thrillers, like Rip the Angels from Heaven. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that. In our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Dr. Krugler for sharing his insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Bethany J, professor of history at Salem State University, and your host for Teaching Hard History. <laughs>